Well, I want to invite you now to turn over to Psalm number 78 for this morning. Psalm number 78, all 72 verses of it. We're going to cover every last one. Don't rush for the exits. It's good stuff. You're in for a treat this morning. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, especially if you're not familiar with Christianity or the teachings of the Bible, we especially want to welcome you and offer you a copy of the Bible that we've provided for you. We we, we place them at the center of each aisle under the seats there. There's plenty of them I'm seeing, at least on this side of the room. If you don't have a copy of the Bible and need one, please just flag somebody down. They'll pass one to you. Love for you to keep it. Take it with you. Read it. And then we'd love to talk to you about what's there. Uh, We're in Psalm 78 this morning. Uh, which is known as a psalm of remembrance. Do you like history? I love history. Oh, I love history. I've been waiting on the day to do the history song. Uh, did you guys know that, uh, that the latest PBS Ken Burns collaboration hit the market last week? Do you guys know about Ken Burns? I'm getting a lot of blank stares. <laughs> Ken Burns, the uh, Civil War, jazz, baseball, World War II, and now that he's given the Ken Burns treatment to the Vietnam War, released last week, I'm super excited about it. That doesn't have anything to do with the psalm today, except that it's a, an example of my love for history. I can't explain why I love history. I've loved history as long as I can remember. I mean, since I was a kid, just can't get enough of it. And I don't know, something about reading about past lives, civilizations that are different from ours, people who speak differently and have different ideas and wear different clothes and just inhabit almost a completely different world just fills me with a sense of wonder. I, I can't even explain it. It's part of why I'm probably not a very good history teacher because I can't explain to you why I like what I like. I've got nothing. If you want to know why you should care about history, I mean, more often than not, I'm gonna have to tell you, I don't know. It's, it's awesome, I guess. I, I don't know. And maybe you learned history in high school or wherever from a guy like me who just loved it because he loved it because he loved it and couldn't convince you why you should too. And maybe history leaves a bad taste in your mouth, if that's you. I want to invite you to suspend that this morning uh, uh, and and consider that, that actually, even if you're not crazy about history for history's sake, history is actually really important to you in ways you may not have realized. I want to give you just one example of an area in which history is important to all of us, and it does bear on what we're going to do this morning in Psalm 78. Everybody cares about history when it comes to their relationships. You can't not care because every relationship for it to be healthy depends on a lot of factors in the past that are brought into the present and that have a huge effect on the, the nature of every, of every relationship. The past isn't really past. It very much lives and affects things now. So when we do premarital counseling, we always begin, the first session always begins with bring us in on what you've experienced what was your parents' marriage like? What, what, did it, what was it like to grow up in the home that you grew up in? What do you think you'll bring from watching your parents into your new marriage? What about your own relationships? Before you met your future spouse, what kinds of other romantic relationships have you had? And in what ways do you think those have affected you? And how do you think that they'll shape the relationship you're beginning now? We always start with relationship history because it matters to any healthy relationship. We need eyes that are open to the past. That helps us understand ourselves. It helps us understand how we've been shaped, how we'll be tempted. And we need eyes that are open to the past that others have had and what they're like and what we can expect from them. And that holds true for God and our relationship with Him just as much as it does for our relationships with each other. 
So we've been talking about the value of the Psalms. One of the reasons we study them, one of the reasons they've been so beloved throughout church history and, and even in, in the history of Israel first and then now through the history of the church. And the reason they've been so beloved is that they model for us what it is to have a healthy relationship with God. It's not always intuitive to know how to relate to someone you can't see or actually hear audibly. We need help to know how to, how to manage this fundamental relationship. And the Psalms model it for us. We've been trying to pull out specific Psalms that model different parts of what, what makes up for a healthy relationship with God. And this morning, we're pulling out a Psalm, one of, uh, of several Psalms known as a Psalm of Remembrance, which helps us to see just how important it is to know who we're dealing with to know something about the history of God's relationship to his people if we want to have a healthy relationship with him today. This psalm is one of several I mentioned. There's, you could find one that Seth read from Psalm 105 earlier. That's another psalm of remembrance. Psalm 106 is another good example. Psalms 135 and 136 if you want to look for some other examples. But all of them have the same purpose. They're here to remind Israel what God has done. To remind Israel we're not starting from scratch with him. We have history together. To show something about not only what God has done towards Israel, but how Israel has responded to him. And to learn from what God had done for them and how Israel had responded back to God. To learn something about what we can expect from God, but also what we should avoid in, in our approach to him. So what I want to do this morning, it's a long psalm. What I want to do is walk through every bit of it to try to understand what we can learn about God from how he related to Israel and how they related back to him. I'm not going to ask you to stand like we normally do for the entire reading of this psalm. I am going to ask you, though, in honor of God's word, to stand with me as I read the introduction to the psalm, the first eight verses, and then we'll work through the rest of it together after that. Stand with me now. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Psalm 78. This is God's word to us this morning. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might. And the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is God's word. You can be seated. What I'm asking this morning, what I'm trying to answer together is how can Israel's history help our relationship with God today? And what I want us to see from this psalm is that there's a few things that we need, that we all depend on for a healthy relationship with God, that, that we need history to supply us. So paying attention to the past, to how God has related his people, Israel, and even to us in our own lives, leads us to memory, which leads us to gratitude, which leads us to hope. Those are the three things we should pull from history 
to ground our relationship with God today. Memory, that's the main one. It'll take most of our time this morning. Which leads to gratitude, which leads to hope. So memory. First eight verses that we just read together, they make the point of the psalm really clear, I think. We're supposed to tell our kids what's happened so that our kids won't forget who they're dealing with and so that they won't make the same mistakes that their grandparents made to put ourselves in the, in the position of this first, the first hearers, the first readers. Tell your kids so that your kids won't make the mistakes that, your grandpa- that their grandparents made. So the rest of the psalm just tells stories. From verse 9 on, it's a psalm full of stories, stories that should be handed down, but also stories that show what happens when you don't hand down the stories. So the psalm, you know, about this time last year, we were in the book of Judges together. This psalm reads a whole lot like the book of Judges to me. It's a cycle that gets repeated, a cycle where God is good to his people, and then his people immediately forget that he's been good to them, and so they turn to other gods. And then God responds with judgment that sets the record straight. No, I am not who you just said I was when you didn't trust me, when you went with some other option instead of me. I'll show you by taking myself away from you and leaving you to yourselves. So God does that. He responds in judgment. And then he responds with yet more goodness. Not because of anything that changed in, the, in Israel, but just because he's, he's good. So God's goodness is forgotten, which leads to judgment, which leads to God's grace And then again, Israel forgets his grace, which leads to more judgment, which leads to more grace, which Israel then forgets, which leads to more judgment, which leads to grace. And through this cycle, we're learning things about ourselves and about God. I want to just try to help you to see that cycle play out in Psalm 78. I'm going to read uh, the the, the whole rest of the psalm uh, because I think that cycle comes out pretty clear. I'm going to make a couple comments here and there to help you see where, where where I'm coming from here. But mainly I want this psalm to stand for itself. It's a beautiful retelling of of. God's grace in the midst of Israel's sin. Once we've seen this pattern play out in the psalm, we'll be able to start commenting on it and, and pulling it into our own lives. So, so verse 9, where we pick up, where I left off a moment ago, we get the Ephraimites armed with the bow, turning back on the day of battle. And from this point, we start to get insight into what the Ephraimites had to forget in order to turn back on the day of battle and what happens when they forget. The Ephraimites were the largest tribe at the time that Israel entered into the land. They were one of uh, descendants from Joseph and became like one of the main leaders for the northern part of Israel. Here it's probably, most, most of the folks I read think there's probably just stand, a stand-in for Israel at large because they were such a big tribe and such so prominent in Israel. It's not just this one tribe that turned their back on God. It's this tribe as a representative of everyone. And listen to what happened. These guys, they did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to his law, verse 10. And where did it start? Well, verse 11 tells us they forgot his works. And the wonders that he had shown them. So turning back on the day of battle comes directly from forgetting the God in whose name they went into battle in the first place. What did they forget? Well, verse 12 picks up the story. In the sight of God, in the sight of their fathers rather, he, God, performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zone. He, he divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud. And all the night with a fiery light. Not only did he lead them, verse 14, or verse 15 rather, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. 
He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. So there's the goodness of the Lord that the Ephraimites forgot. That's the first part of the cycle. God is good to his people. He delivers them. Another thing the Ephraimites forgot, though, is that their ancestors had a problem with forgetting. So verse 17 after the, how, did, how, did, how did Ephraim's ancestors respond to God's goodness to them in the desert? Well, they sinned still more against him, verse 17, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. So God's just delivered them. He made the seas spread apart so they could walk through on dry land. And then he's given them water to drink in the wilderness by striking a rock. But verse 19 says they spoke against God, saying... Well, okay, so he can spread the seas out and he can give us water from a rock, but can God spread a table in the wilderness? Sure, he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Okay, I guess that's pretty, pretty impressive, but, but can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet, verse 23 says, he commanded the skies above. He opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them the manna to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he let out the south wind and he rained meat on them like dust. Winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled for he gave them what they craved. God's goodness forgotten. Which leads to verse 30. All right, you don't trust me. You don't think I'll provide for you like I've done before. Verse 30, before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed the strongest of them. And he laid low the young men of Israel. And in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. So far, we've seen the first stages of this cycle I mentioned. God was good to them in the wilderness. They rebelled against him. He exposed them for their self-reliance and their looking to other gods. But his cycle never ends there. When he killed him, they sought him, verse 34. They repented and sought God earnestly, at least for a moment. They remembered that God was their rock. The judgment had its effect. They remembered who they were dealing with. The Most High God, their Redeemer. But it was only skin deep. They flattered Him with their mouths and lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. God's still dealing with the same fickle people. How does He deal with them? Knowing exactly who He's dealing with, yet, verse 38, He, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that comes not again. 
What is it that Ephraim forgot on the day of battle when he turned his back on God? He forgot this whole cycle. He forgot the goodness of God in the wilderness to his people. He forgot how forgetful his ancestors were and that that brought down God's judgment on them. And he forgot that God responds to sinful people with more and more and more grace. He forgot who he was dealing with. He forgot who he was and what he'd be tempted to. So the cycle, there it is, ending in verse 39. Then verse 40 picks up, same cycle over again, with different parts of Israel's history. So what we've just read together was the wilderness phase. So Israel's in Egypt, God delivers them from Egypt, and they go through the wilderness for a long, long time while God is teaching them how to trust him. Then they come into the promised land, and some of the same things happen again. In this second cycle, so verse 40 all the way to the end of the psalm, which we'll read here in a moment, uh, the same, same phases play out, but now to illustrate it, he uses the before and the after. He's given us the wilderness. Now he's going to talk about what happened when they were in Egypt. They forgot the plagues that God sent on the Egyptians to, to, to cause the Egyptians to let the people go and then, and then skip ahead to the promised land. Here's what happened when his people came into the land just as he promised they would and turn from him yet again. I'm going to walk you through this just so you can see it. Then we'll, then we'll start talking about how to apply it to ourselves. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert, verse 40 says. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Think of that as another little intro to what's coming next. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. So now we flash back to the day they'd forgotten, the day when he redeemed them from Egypt, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zone. What did he do in Egypt? He turned their rivers to blood so that they couldn't drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety, so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land. So skip ahead, beyond the wilderness phase, to the entering into the land, to the, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. God's goodness again. Phase one of this cycle. Yet, verse 56... They tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. High places in the Old Testament is always referenced to places where they put idols or shrines to the gods of their neighbors. They like to go up onto mountaintops to do this. And many cultures around the world still have the, the, the same sort of practices. You'll see mountaintop shrines. And Israel was all about that. 
That's what their neighbors were doing. They took their cues from the people around them. So God has now brought them out of Egypt and into the land just like he said he would. And immediately when they get there, they start looking for what's next and who they can get it from. They moved him to jealousy with their idols, verse 58 says. So the cycle, God's goodness, Israel forgets. Next step is God's judgment on them. Verse 59, when God heard, he was full of wrath. He utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. That was a special place of his presence in the north, the tent where he dwelled among mankind. And he delivered his power to captivity and his glory, his people as his glory, to the hand of the foe. To expose them for looking to somebody else to deliver them, God pulls himself out of their life and leaves them to the foes that they turned to for deliverance in the first place. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage, verse 62 says. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword. Their widows made no lamentation. So we've seen the cycle almost complete. God's goodness, God's goodness forgotten. God's goodness proven by his judgment. And then with no change in Israel whatsoever, in verse 65, we get the end of the cycle. God's grace to people who turn against them yet again. Then the Lord watching his people, his glory, in the hand of their foes, cut down by the sword, watching this, he can't take it anymore. Then the Lord awoke as from a sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. The psalm concludes with one little verse that, that brings us up to its present. So after all of this, God rejected the tent of Joseph. He didn't choose the tribe of Ephraim up in the north, the biggest tribe, the most likely tribe. Instead, he chose the tribe of Judah. He chose Mount Zion, Jerusalem, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he's founded forever. And he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. He made, took David from shepherding sheep to shepherding his people. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand, the end. The story ends without really an ending. It's open-ended on purpose. The people of Israel reading this psalm, singing it together in their worship, are invited into this story. It's an invitation to them to, to place themselves where their fathers had been before them and a question to them, what will you do? Will you remember? Will you pass these stories down to your children so that your children know who they're dealing with when they turn to God? Will you pass these stories down to the, your children so your children know they are not above forgetting even things that happen to them today, good things given to them today from his hand? Will you pass this relationship history down so that Israel's generations won't be starting from scratch with their God? The main point of this psalm is pretty clear. It's, it's a psalm that's put here so we won't forget that God is good, that God is worthy of our trust. That's why it was here. Tell your, tell your kids so your kids will trust them. 
So stop acting like God's got more to prove. For Israel, God was always on trial, always. They were always asking him to do more, to show himself for them, to prove that that he could do something that the other gods around them couldn't do. It's almost like every new day for them, every new season, God was just on a level playing field with all the other options around them. It's like they're just picking somebody to trust out of a lineup where they all look the same to them. They forget their history. It's almost impossible to, I mean, it is impossible to imagine how frustrating that must have been, how deeply grievous that would have been to God, given all that he'd given to them over and over, and how little he'd received from them in return. And it's still never, never enough to convince them to come off the market and to just rest in him. And friends, we are vulnerable too when we don't experience God as one who's been good to us. When the good news about what God's done in the past isn't living and active news in our lives now. What happens in that case when, 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 when you might say what we have is less than an experience knowledge, experiential knowledge, we, not a knowledge that, 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 that's been there, that's, that's known Him in real time, in real life circumstances. When what we have is less than that, we, like Israel, are going to begin to judge the past and who God has been to us in light of the present and how well we think we're doing now. Rather than judging the present and its good and bad in light of what God has shown us in the past. Let me say that again to make sure you get it. I think it's one of the main points of this psalm. When, when we don't experience God now as someone who has been good to us in the past, when we don't remember who he is to us, then just like Israel, God is always going to be on trial. What that means is that we'll always be judging the past, who God was, in light of what we're getting now. And especially when we're getting, what we're getting now is, is hard times that we haven't chosen for ourselves, that we would love to have avoided if we could have, stuff we didn't ask for. When that's what we're getting now, we'll use that as a filter for viewing everything about God in the past. We'll see only what's wrong. We'll have a skewed memory. But if we remember who God really has been to us in the past, then, then, then knowing his faithfulness, seeing it, that becomes a filter for how we view everything in our present. That's why memory is so important to Christians, not just to people of Israel. Besides baptism, the most important ritual given to the church is communion. Something Jesus designed on the night that he was betrayed because he knew who he was dealing with. He had relationship history to go on. And he knew that we, like Israel, would be forgetful. That we'd always be tempted to judge our present, not in light of the track record he's built up of faithfulness to us, but in light of what might have been. That we would always be, be tempted to, to hear and to see what's going on now more clearly than we, have, than we hear and see the word about what God has been for us in Jesus. So, friends, the gospel message is that the God who made us has come to us in Christ because even though we turned away from him, even though we, tr- we treated him as if he were less dependable, less worthy than other things we might trust in, even though we've rejected the goodness that he puts into our lives every day, 
He chose to draw near to us when we had run away. He chose to do that at the cost of the thing most precious to him in the whole world, the cost of his only begotten son who became like us, who lived a life that was perfect and died a death that we deserve, not him, and who lives again now to promise us forgiveness and freedom and a new future if we'll trust in him. That's who God is to us. That's the relationship history we have to draw on if we will. And communion is a ritual we use to try to bring that relationship history into our present. To try to remember that no matter what else is going on right now, no matter how little I understand about it or how much I don't like about it, God doesn't have anything left to prove to me. He who did not spare his own son but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's Paul's argument in Romans 8. When I remember that, when I let history drive my memory, then God's goodness to me becomes a filter for what I see or how I interpret things going on now. That leads us to the second point. So memory is the main point of this psalm. The next two I want to do more quickly, but just the really applications of a life that's built on memory. If you think about memory as the foundation Think about gratitude as layer number two. If you think about this as a pyramid, that, 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 that this psalm is meant to say, you've got to build your life on what God has already done. You've got to remember it. Don't forget it. Tell your kids. Don't let them forget it. Let them tell their kids so that they won't forget it. Then on top of memory, what we can build for now, memory of the past, leads to this second layer, which is, which is gratitude in the present. So what I want you to see from this psalm, just go back over a couple of these details, is that when Israel forgot, it led them to, to ingratitude in their present. Starts with forgetfulness. The fruit of forgetfulness is ingratitude that, that has them sort of looking over their shoulder, looking around for, for better options to trust in, as if they might do better elsewhere. Let me just give you a couple examples of this. So in verse 15 and following, we're told the story of how God gives his people water from the rock. That's amazing. It's as if he hadn't, even if he hadn't just spread the sea and let them walk through on dry land, he gets out into the desert, there's no water around, so he just like, opens a rock and gives them some. What, who does that? So, they should have told them something, right? They should have drawn something from that, some sort of lesson, I don't know, like maybe God, he's got this. He can give you what you need if you'll trust him. But as soon as they've gotten their thirst quenched, they're speaking against God, saying, okay, so he can provide water from rocks, but how does he do with tables in the wilderness? How about bread and meat? Can he do that too? They're already testing him. They're ungrateful. They're looking around. Same thing happens in the, in the next cycle. In verse 54, same pattern. So he's brought them through, out of Egypt through the wilderness and into this beautiful land that he's given them. It's a holy land. It's theirs. He has won this land for them. Just like he said he would. And what do they do as soon as they get there? They set up idols right there in the land he gave them. They set up idols as if he couldn't now give them what they needed, what they wanted now that they're settled. So they've forgotten his goodness in the past. They forgot they had history with this God that showed he was trustworthy. So in the present, 
They're ungrateful for what he's given them. They're looking around for more. They're looking around for other gods that might give them what they want. It's a failure of memory that leads to a failure of gratitude. So before we jump on Israel, before we think that if God had done these sorts of miracles in our lives, before our eyes, that we'd have no trouble believing, I think we need to do a thought experiment. The Bible says that that every breath we've ever breathed is a gift from God. That life itself comes only from Him. The Bible says that every time the sun rises, it rises because God said it would. Every drop of rain that's necessary for every bit of life on on earth, every drop comes from His hand. And that's just about the physical elements we depend on every day. We're also told that every good gift comes from His hand. So everything you enjoy, every friendship that makes your life meaningful, everything you have comes from Him. Think about all the things in your life now that you depend on but don't provide for yourself. Just think about that. All the things that you depend on being there when you wake up to make it through a day but that you couldn't actually provide for yourself. If the Bible is true... Those things all come from God, all of them. But how often do you think about that? How often do you acknowledge it? How often does that goodness shape your view of what you fear? Or shape your view of what you want? Or shape your view of what you can't predict or control? Without an active memory of God's goodness towards us in the past, and especially in Jesus... What happens, naturally, for all of us, is that, is that we can live with a sense of entitlement to the good things that God has given us. So, so we stop seeing them. We just take them for granted. We assume them. And then we look only to what he hasn't given us yet. So all the good things that every day brings to us, including the sun that's shining out there right now, and the breath that I'm breathing just to talk right now, and that you're breathing just to sit there and listen right now, all of it's from his hands. But we don't think about that, right? We, we assume it. We take that for granted. Now we're moving on to the other things that we want that we don't have yet. All of us do this. It's amazing how fast it happens. It happens even in good times, maybe, maybe especially in good times. It was when Israel had lots to drink that they started worrying about food, right? It was when they had this wonderful land that was safe and, and beautiful, that they started to, to look to other idols to give them more. As soon as we have what we have, we turn our attention to what we don't have, to what's missing. And living like this, living with this sense of, of disappointment, maybe even an aggrieved sense that we're getting less than what we are owed from life, no one enjoys it, but besides what it feels like for us, despite of how ugly it feels, how icky that feels for us, What this psalm is telling us is that our ingratitude for the good things God has given us is deeply painful for God and insulting. It keeps him always on trial, always asking for more evidence that he's good. And friends, no relationship will ever be able to thrive like that. What human relationship can thrive when you feel like you're always being judged? Like someone's always looking to you for more evidence that they care. That you care. It's like we're constantly looking. Here's an image, I think, for what Israel's relationship with God is like and what ours is in our ingratitude. It's like, it's like we're just speed dating him, right? 
we, we may have him in front of us at the table, but we're always looking for a prettier girl to walk in the door, looking over our shoulder to see who's back here that might be coming to my table next. He's just speed dating. But every, we don't know anyone. Relationships always starting from scratch is the way we treat him. And so prove it to me. You got 10 minutes, maybe two minutes. I don't know how long this thing's last. Never been there. Never tried it. Let's say two minutes. You got two minutes. What can, what can you show me in two minutes? All right, all right, come on. Get, get on with it because I'm seeing somebody who looks pretty good right back over there. I think, I think maybe I'm going to move to that table. What relationship can ever thrive when it's like that? Always on trial, always asking for more proof. But, but, but when we remember, when we let history guide our understanding of who God is to us, when we lay that foundation of memory and don't let go of it, then what we can build on top of that is a life of gratitude. A life that sees God's goodness, that isn't looking for more evidence. It's, it's, it's happy with the evidence that it has. God, this memory brings God's goodness into our lives as a living and active and ongoing reality. And that's what makes gratitude possible. Some self-awareness we can take from this psalm. When you're struggling with ingratitude, what you've got is a memory problem. Think about it that way. It's that simple. When you recognize in yourself, when God's spirit convicts you, Christian, that you aren't grateful for what God has given you and that you're seeing what you don't have more than what you do, let this psalm remind you that what you've got there is a memory problem. And the way to fight it is to remember, to remember God's faithfulness and more than anything, to remember Jesus. Because in Christ, we know who we're dealing with. So we start with memory. That's what history helps us to. And when history helps us to memory, history helps us to lives of gratitude. And when we live with memory and with gratitude, then history helps us to lives of hope. Think of that one as the final stage of this pyramid. Founded on memory, fueled by gratitude for the present, we live with hope for the future. So God's people remember and God's people wait. And one of the fundamental postures of God's people throughout the scriptures is waiting on promises to get fulfilled. And we're still there. We are absolutely waiting. And those to whom this psalm first came, they were there. This psalm is in the middle of a bunch of psalms that are really dark. It's in the section of the psalms that's full of psalms that are crying out to God for relief that are asking him for some sort of justice because they fit really well. Wherever, wherever they may have been first written, they fit really well during the time in Israel's history when, when they were uh, uh, colonized, essentially, by, by powers that lived outside of Israel who came in and took over Israel and, and even deported some of Israel's population back to their lands and made them slaves and servants. Because this, this psalm may end with David, but that wasn't the end of the story. God gave Israel a great gift when he gave them David, but just like they forgot his goodness in the wilderness, and just like they forgot his goodness in Egypt, they eventually forgot his goodness in giving them David. And it's not long after David has moved on that Israel is once again looking to the, the gods of their neighbors. And once again, God proves his goodness through judgment. This psalm fits really well in a season where God's people were waiting in darkness. A season when they would need a warning not to repeat the mistakes their parents had made. But a season in which they needed more than just a warning. Like they were living with that warning every day. With the effects of forgetfulness and sin. They saw it all around them. That was their life. 
What these people needed was not just a warning. These people needed hope. They needed a reason to believe that their future wouldn't be like their present. They needed a reason to believe that if they were ungrateful like their fathers had been, that wouldn't be the end of the story. They needed a cycle like this one that always ends with God's grace. Always. They needed to know they were dealing with a God whose love won't even be stopped by his people's inability to appreciate it. A God whose love is relentless and steadfast. And that is exactly what we get in this psalm. This psalm displays a a shocking, almost senseless love. I mean, most of the details are about things that should be remembered. And examples of Israel's ingratitude. But there are moments in this psalm where if you know to look for them, you get an altogether otherworldly love breaking in. So, for example, back in verse 17, we get Israel forgetting that they'd just gotten water out of a rock, wondering if now they could have food. God's angry about that. He should be. They're treating him like they can't depend on him when he's shown them that he could, that they, that they could. He's angry. Look at verse 23. Despite his anger at them not trusting his saving power, not believing in him after all they'd been through together. Despite them treating him like they were starting from scratch all over again. Yet, he commanded the skies above. He opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat, gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of angels. How did God respond to their ingratitude? He gives them more food to eat. Or, or jump ahead a little further. Verses 36 to 38. And God's judged them. He's shown them what happens when they don't trust him. And their response is half-hearted at best. They flatter him with their mouths. They lie to him with their tongues. Verse 36. Their hearts aren't steadfast to him. They don't really love him. Not really. And how does he respond to loveless people? Verse 38. Yet... <laughs> Despite the fact that they were not faithful to him, he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Maybe my favorite example of all, verses 56 to 66. This is where they get into the Holy Land, they start worshiping other idols. Immediately, right after he's brought them in, cleared it out, given them exactly what he said he would, they start worshiping other idols. And he gives them essentially what they asked for. He pulls out. He leaves his dwelling at Shiloh. All right, you want these guys to take care of you? Let's see how that goes for you. He pulls out and immediately their neighbors take over. He gave them what they asked for and what they deserved. But verse 65 is just beautiful when you learn to recognize what's there. He gave them exactly what he did, that they deserve, exactly what they asked for. But he just can't take it. Nothing changes in them. Like they don't have a change of heart, and all of a sudden now they're steadfast, and so he responds to them with, with, with goodness. Even that would be merciful, given what he's been through with them. But they don't change at all. They're still exactly who they were. And he just can't take seeing his people in pain. He can't take it. He just loves them because he loves them because he loves them. He's not going to stand there and watch them get destroyed. I love the imagery here. The Lord awoke us from sleep. Think of him like, like Lindsay when she thinks she hears even a whimper of our kids at another level of our house. She can wake up out of a dead sleep like a bolt and sit straight upright and she's on it. 
she images God a lot better than I do in those situations. I mean, I'm, I am, uh, it's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest, did it really make a sound? If a kid whimpers and you don't respond, did it really make a sound? If you, if you turn back over and go back to sleep, will it just go away? That's kind of what I think. Uh, but Lindsay's not like that. I mean, she can hear even the slightest whimper and she is up. And I think of, I think of the Lord here in that way. His, his children are in need. He knows it. He's got this sense. They're being killed down there. He can't take it. He awakes like that, like out of a sleep, and he's on it. In fact, they say he's like a, he's like a strong man shouting because of wine. That's an interesting image. I, I don't think we're supposed to, to push that too far and think of God as a, drunk, as a drunkard. But, but, I mean, he is, he is uh, he's loose and ready for battle. Let's put it that way. He's, he, is, he is fighting drunk at that level. I mean, you know, not drunk, but you, you get the point. I'm just going to move on. He is on it. He's on it. His people are in need, and he can't help himself. His love is instinctive, and it's passionate, and it's vigilant, and it's his. It's not based on those he loves. It's not tied to them at all. It's in spite of them. This wouldn't be the last time he would leave them because they turned away from him. But the rest of the Bible story shows that he is never willing and never able. I think the real way to put it is he just isn't even able to leave them for good because he loves them he just loves them and just like in this song we know that he responded to future generations of Israel turning away from him to what happened to them when he pulled his presence back from them his response ultimately was to restore his presence, not just in the form of a temple where only one man could go into his presence and only once a year and only with lots and lots of blood, but to send his only son, Jesus, to put on flesh and live and pitch his tent right here in the middle of us, to come closer forever than he'd ever been before. Friends, this psalm is here to give hope to forgetful sinners. It's here to tell Israel to tell us not to forget who we're dealing with. To tell us that we've got to remember above all that God is unwilling to remember our sin. That's the irony. What we have to remember above all is that we are dealing with a God who won't remember. Not when we come to him in Jesus. He, we, we need to remember that we know who we're dealing with. Because we're dealing with a God who decides to treat us as if he doesn't know who he's dealing with. As if he doesn't know what he knows about me. Psalm 79, right after the one we're in today, includes a prayer from, the, from, from, from a judged people who know they got what they deserved. Do not remember against us our former iniquities, it prays. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us for we are brought very low. And in the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, God answers their prayer and says, there's a day coming. <laughs> there's a day coming when, when each one will have to teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. They're all gonna know me. From the least of them to the greatest because I will forgive their iniquity. You know what that means? I will remember their sin no more. Memory of God's past goodness to us feeds hope for the future. 
this is what you can expect in a relationship with God. You will sin, and by the blood of His only Son, He will atone for your sin. Your love will waver and attach itself to other objects, and that will hurt Him, but His love will only and always be fixed on you in Jesus. Why should you face a future with hope, friends? Not because you stand a better chance of remembering than Israel did. But because if you come near to God in Christ, he will draw near to you. Because he in Christ will fight for you. He will protect you. He will preserve you so that nothing can snatch you away. And he won't even let your sin cut you off from his love. That's who you're dealing with. And that's what history teaches us. Father, help us to remember what your word has said because you know us, you know our frame, you know we're forgetful. We ask you to help us live as if you're for us in Jesus and to see everything else in his light. Amen.